don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, from Timbuktu to Fort de France, the iconic power of monuments and their destruction. With Bakti Shringarpoe. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Bakti Shringarpoe, who is uh, editor in chief of uh, the online journal Warscapes. And we, we're going to see in a minute uh, what, this is, uh, what this is about for those of those of you who don't know, uh, who don't know this journal, uh, she's um, she's teaching uh, postcolonial literature at the uh, University of Connecticut, and uh, she has a forthcoming book about uh, uh, both uh, Sudan and uh, South Sudan. Um, uh, hello, Bakti. Hello. Nice <laughs> uh, to meet you. <laughs> thank you for um, uh, taking the time in this uh, New York morning to uh, record this conversation with me. Um, I think I think it'd be interesting if we uh, begin this conversation by having you introduce us to the to the work that you've been doing with a, a pretty uh, formidable team uh, <laughs> yeah. at Warscapes because it's a uh, it's a it's a very very rich uh, journal and I, I recommend everyone who doesn't know it yet to to go to go see it. Um, maybe you can even start by telling us how and when it's it started. I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Um, well. The journal actually was born as a, you know, I've been um, in the early 2000s, I was a PhD student uh, at the CUNY Graduate Center, and I was uh, working in post-colonial literature and theory. And um, the central question that I was trying to sort of investigate was, um, at the end of European colonialism, why is it that uh, the new countries um, fail to transition into a peaceful state, but instead fall into patterns of civil violence. Um, and during that time, I ended up uh, sort of excavating, unearthing all this e extremely rich, incredible literature from Africa, you know, Middle East, Asia, um, that I realized wasn't available at all to uh, to the Western reader or to in, in any sort of mainstream capacity. Um, and not only was that, you know, did, did I, was I jolted by the idea that um, the space of publishing is very finite, very insular, um, you know, very, um, I don't want to say censored, but very guarded. Um, and I was, I was really jolted by this idea. And I, you know, and yes, I went through writing my dissertation and finishing the PhD, but it always stuck with me that there were almost 100, 120 authors that are never going to uh, see light of day or, you know, they, they won't be uh, available. Um, so, of course, then you turn to, you know, the digital space, which is cheaper, freer, easier. Uh, and I thought to turn, uh, you know, turn it into a sort of online magazine. And uh, and then I was uh, and you know I was it was co-founded with my uh, with you know 
my partner and who's a former journalist, um, Michael Bronner, and he was experiencing a lot of uh, disillusionment uh, with reportage and journalism and uh, the way in which that world was functioning. So he felt uh, more and more uh, there was lesser space for, um, you know, longer pieces, in-depth pieces, um, you know, marketing and publicity took up, you know, too much energy in these spaces. So both of us sort of uh, pulled in and decided to take a shot. And, you know, there are, you know, we have a few goals, a uh, few missions. You know, one of them is sort of uh, create uh, a journal that's located in the West that comes from very much a Western sensibility in English language, uh, but that is talking back a little bit to the West. Um, and to um, also deal with conflicts that don't, um, you know, get light of day necessarily. You know, some conflicts become more important to a national psyche than others, you know. So for a long time, we were hearing a lot about Iraq, um, you know, and Iraq and Afghanistan, because those were geopolitically important. Um, while, you know, or then you'd hear about Darfur, but in a very evangelical uh, sort of tone. Uh, but then nothing about sort of Burma or something, you know. So uh, the idea was to um, open up that space and not worry about the geopolitical connections, but to excavate marginalized conflicts. And then, of course, the goal was also to uh, put it within a wider understanding of issues of race, uh, post-colonial, uh, you know, histories and contexts and so on. Um, and I, I, of course, I wanted it to be very visual and I don't know to what degree I succeed, but, I, I, you know, we try to have it as visual as possible. And then, um, and then, you know, I think one of the goals of it is also to create a kind of um, feeling of translation. And by translation, I think I mean like, uh, translation within sort of genres, like um, it's not a typical academic journal with very academic writing, but it's not sort of a pop uh, magazine uh, either, but it sort of creates this hybrid. It brings from both sides. Um, and also just to, uh, to offer just sometimes translated works and things like that. So, and to translate also the visual a little bit. So those were some of the goals and, um, you know, that's what we've been uh, doing, mm -hmm. you know. It's been expanding. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw that you have a, an editorial board and mm -hmm. uh, you have some massive retrospective, like one about Edward Said recently. Yeah. Uh, it's a, <laughs> a very rich uh, editorial line, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we are very proud of our uh, retrospectives, um, which uh, take a sort of topic or a person and then we kind of uh, create all sort of this circular, like, um, you know, context around that particular theme and. Um, you know, uh, it's it takes a lot of energy, lots of work. And um, so, you know, we've done like crazy stuff. Like we did the one with food, which was one of the still remains one of the more popular ones, uh, which was which is, you know, like a topic that's under the skin, but it's not really hasn't really been talked about. And within a very political sense, there's little things here and there. But so we wanted to really amass everything. And then the Edward Said, of course, it was the tenure of his uh, Uh, death anniversary so we just collected all the stuff you know about him and put it in one place and it was great and the latest one was um, on India actually hmm. and uh, the conflicts going on within India to sort of uh, uh, tarnish or to sort of cut through this image of 
democra- democracy and uh, you know this kind of uh, a globalized you know this, uh, this ideology of like we're moving forward we're globalizing well in fact you have tons of small conflicts that you know people are very unhappy you know on many many levels so to kind of get through that through fiction we so. uh, we're going to get right into the topic um of discussion today but uh since you mentioned food i i cannot help but uh <laughs> have you have you talked for a few minutes about this uh this one article you sent me that was a uh, really uh, w- wonderful uh, in particular given their given the ongoing massacre going on in in gaza right now and you had conducted an interview last year of um of these two women who um who made a book called uh, Gaza Gastronomy is that right Gaza Kitchen it's called Gaza Kitchen I'm sorry and uh and uh, I was I was really uh, uh fascinated by what I was uh, reading and and uh, I, I just since since we're talking about food right now I, j- I just would like you to have uh, a few words a few words to introduce this book that's that's uh, mm-hmm. really not to miss Yeah I mean you know I was stunned when I when I found it um and you know it was doing the rounds and you know um Uh, you know i was excited and it's it's two women two incredible women uh, leila el haddad who uh, ran a very popular blog for a long time called gaza mom it was about motherhood and conflict just um you know really tragic and also like humorous and just lovely and then maggie schmidt who has been writing about food and she's also an anthropologist and um thinker so you know i was just astounded when i got a copy of that book because i have never truly seen a work that is so interdisciplinary that is so that bridges so many different uh, fields of study you know it has all the maps it has history it has beautiful visuals it has uh, interviews with individuals you know it has all this commentary on hamas and their role in this stuff the whole um, uh, all this stuff about the food chain and the food politics in that region and uh, these were you know extraordinary women and of course it's uh it's palestine so uh this is the one place where food politics is very openly manifest right um there's always little eruptions uh, about uh, you know uh, where did the baba ganoush where was it really born you know uh, what is israeli couscous you know and there's always these little um, eruptions around this uh, stuff and what these women do is really locate uh something very specific and connected to the land and it's also a very contemporary book in the sense that they managed to uh, uh show how you know cuisine can thrive in a conflict i mean a lot of this food is made these recipes are made using un aid you know and what are the limitations of that and you know it's just it's a it's a great account of just tenacity and creativity and innovation it's mm-hmm. very special um yeah and i i will i will certainly uh link uh to this interview on the on the page of the podcast um but so this introduction being made and uh, uh probably the the will of many listeners to now go discover worldscape uh, uh being being established uh, i think um uh, we're going to we're going to start with another article you've been writing uh that um uh, resonates uh, quite a lot with me because actually we we both wrote an article mm. uh, approximately at the same time so going back to July 2012 when um uh, uh the group uh, the the Salafist group and Sardin 
started to uh, demolish the, some uh, millennium uh, uh, mausoleums in uh, in Timbuktu in in Mali, um, and how it triggered uh, an outrage in in the Western world that actually is uh, quite pro quite problematic in the way it's been formulating uh, formulated. Sorry, uh, and uh, I think uh, we we're going to talk. We're going to talk about this in particular, and your article is very uh, in, informative in terms of uh, the, the, the local politics of of, uh, of Mali, and especially regarding the the, the Tuaregs mm. uh, um, that joined, uh, that were at some point allied with the uh, Sardin uh, uh, when when those events uh, happened, and and there's reasons reasons behind that, as you as you will explain to us. And then we'll we'll talk more in general about what it what it means to what it means to to turn against monuments like that. And your your article's name was Rage Against the Monuments. Um, but so maybe yeah, if you, if you would not mind uh, 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 reminding us of this uh, historical context that uh, resonates quite particularly right now with what's going on in North Northern Iraq, mm -hmm. um, uh, please. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know it's really. Uh, This this always haunts us, right? I mean, the Taliban have been destroying Buddhist statues in Afghanistan now with the ISIS, I, ISIS uh, destroying shrines um, in Iraq. And, you know, there's um, always a shock. Uh, why is this happening? You know, these are old archives. This is history. You know, there's some kind of a universal um, uh, need to embrace it as ours, even if it's not really ours. Um, but, you know, for me, um, it it was really, uh, you know, thinking about it and I mean, particularly thinking about the slander, you know, these um, uh, these people are naturally destructive. Mm -hmm. These are illiterates. These are these are barbarians. You know, I mean, um, you know, uh, yeah, perhaps that is a sort of an instinct. But for me, it really brought me back to um, thinking about uh, Franz Fanon and his Uh, you know, his very little, tiny little stuff that he did about space and this question of anger and um, what it is that makes um, a person that has uh, had no power in society uh, burst forth with anger, you know, um, and that there is always lodged in the subconscious uh, this dream to destroy something that's not yours, you know. But I, I do think that your article brought that full circle because... I think you were talking about a sort of dialectical relationship between iconoclasts and iconophiles or iconodules, you called it, yeah, where the person creating the monument and desecrating the monument have the same relationship to it, is what I got out of it, which is that it is a powerful act, that that, that you acknowledge the power of this particular monument. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to locate the Malian stuff in a very, um, you know, in a very local context of why these guys want to what, what does it mean for them uh, for years and years they've had a you know a certain relationship to that space and now they're in there and they want to uh, desecrate and you know uh, make themselves in charge of something and it's it's extremely tragic but uh, there's also something natural about it and I feel like um, reading Bataille or you know I sort of kind of threw in his quote in there and that sort of explains Um, a lot to me about this storming against the Bastille and why that happened. And, you know, he locates it uh, very beautifully uh, within a certain kind of instinct of 
um, people that are poor or marginalized and so on. And I know you can't apply this to everything and um, so on, but um, I think, you know, one has to look at each. I think my, 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 what I wanted to take away from thinking about the Mali thing was that you have to look at each specific moment within its sort of contextual, uh, you know, history. So I don't know. Uh, it's tough. It's, you know. Well, it's tough. Pre precisely. I mean, I, I invite you to, to carry on with uh, mm -hmm. explaining what, what was the specific history of, uh, of uh, not only the, the Salafist group, but also the, the Tuareg uh, uh, who, are, who are indigenous to this, to this land and, uh, and mm -hmm. how, how, how an event is not just an event as like a, a sort of sporadic uh, mm -hmm. uh, thing happening, but yeah. I, quite on the contrary, just anchored into history to a way that we could almost argue that history made this event impossible not to happen. So, mm -hmm. uh, could, could you, in the specific case of Mali, could you, could you explain I that? Mean, I think with the, with the Mali context, I think it was, it's really, you know, the way in which the Tuareg have been hoping for their own uh, autonomous land and autonomous sort of set of rights. Um, and I think those structures were sort of already there um, and uh, you know Timbuktu in particular has a lot of these sacred spaces these enshrined manuscripts that have been you know been there very sacred you can't touch it and you have to belong to a certain group to kind of find access to some degree to it you know the knowledge is very um, uh, is very guarded And I think um, all it required in my mind was this sort of spark. And I think that happened with the uh, stuff going on in Libya, all the fighting going on in Libya and this kind of uh, extreme um, mass of weapons that, uh, you know, this kind of cachet of weapons that ended up in Libya and the foreign fighters coming in and wanting to take over. And I think, you know, I don't believe that the Tuareg want to, uh, you know, destroyed Timbuktu and the monuments and so on, but it became part of this, you know, to me, it felt part of sort of breaking through this sacred, like they decided, you know, the way for them to kind of move forward was to, you know, ex you know, destroy and explode um, this kind of former history that has always locked them out, you know. So, um, you know, I mean, Part of when I say this, I feel like I'm defending them or something. But you know, I don't. Uh, I don't want to seem that way. But mm -hmm. I think uh, the moment was ripe. You know. Mm -hmm. No, and I, I think we're we're not as much talking about the what happened mm -hmm. itself rather than the narratives that's been that's been imposed on it. And, sure. And when we were talking about like the, the barbarians, the, the mad men of God, I mean, yeah. uh, we 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 saw all all the things. And I think there was something quite disturbing in, in the fact that um, um, there was clearly an outrage happening in the West that was directed at the d destruction of something that was not human. That mm -hmm. was, I mean, that was a product of human, but that was not human life. Yeah. And so uh, you would see you would see the Shi and the the the, the Salafist uh, fighting in in um, in Iraq, and people would not really care so much. Right. But like, if if um, if uh, if you if you have uh, some Salafis destroying the Sufi uh, the Sufi uh, mausoleums in, in in Mali, yeah. And the and the and the Millennium uh, 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 manuscripts, then all in a sudden there was there was an outrage. So. Uh, 
something I, I was really wondering, and, and I mean it, wondering, I, I did not have an answer for it, is that what, what was it that was, because I felt, I felt it as well, epidermically, I felt yeah. there was something horrible happening, but I was wondering whether it was me be, uh, thinking of um, thinking of those mausoleums as a as a uh, if I if I really exaggerate uh, as a as a potential place I could visit someday and, yeah, and well, be that I felt that too <laughs> and kind of romanticize myself within yeah. within this space and being like oh no if they've been destroyed this can no longer happen mm-hmm. uh, or if there was something deeper than that because uh, again like it's I think I I I start my article by by asking like if if you were given a choice between like saving a human life or saving a building I think most of us would would, would go for the human life but is it maybe things are a little bit more complex than that because obviously the, the buildings can have a can contain a very very uh, uh, um, heavy weight of mm. of culture and history. And so, and plus, being an architect, I suppose uh, an attack on a on a building has a particular weight as well in it. But I think what what I'd like to come to in this conversation is maybe not so much have a, a moralistic um, mm. uh, interpretation of this destruction, because I actually would like to talk about a few destructions that I I feel historically have been uh, quite interesting. Uh, and um, and so we we. It's more about having yeah. an, an ethical an ethical position towards that and, and yeah. maybe fi- fighting it or going with it, but not necessarily saying like, oh, destroying building is bad. Yeah, is no, bad? I mean, you know, you just mentioned Iraq and uh, this sort of epidermic thing, you know, that you use this word. Um, I had that reaction to Mali, but before that, I had had that reaction in 2003 in the invasion of Iraq mm-hmm. when they destroyed the museum, you know, and at the same time, I was teaching a course, like an introduction to world literature course, and we were doing Epic of Gilgamesh, and, you know, they destroyed the statue of Gilgamesh, and mm-hmm. I started to feel just, you know, absolutely sick, and a few years later, I ended up meeting, you know, in, by chance, some soldiers who had been part of this stuff and they are technically uh, tried to defend, you know, as the looting happened and so on. And, you know, there was all this drinking and the soldiers started to tell, ex-soldiers started to tell the stories of how one of them in Kansas had taken a trident and he had just brought it back. And then they said, yeah, you know, and I took this thing and I took this thing. And I was just, I, I all, you know, I was so horrified and upset. And, you know, and of course we in the mainstream media, the looting was done by the barbaric Iraqis who didn't care for their own uh, heritage. Uh, but really, it was the saviors or whatever that mm-hmm. were very much enjoying this uh, thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're talking about the, the, the U.S. Army's looting of their national museum of Iraq in Baghdad mm-hmm. in, back in 2003. Yeah. The of the yeah, exactly. And technically, they were not doing the looting, but then turns out that they had yeah, done a little yeah, bit yeah. of it, right? Um you know, I think particularly, and I don't think it's a Western thing, but I think maybe it's a class thing, but I think uh, like a certain bourgeois intellectual class really um, tends to kind of feel ownership uh, towards, you know, like objects, you know, uh, you know, institutional objects. And, you know, I always wonder if somebody on the ground who's experiencing this object again and again, it's imposing up at them, if they have that same 
you know, if they have the same reverence, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think in the case of Mali, I really felt that Mali is always projected, particularly in the French uh, context, as this sort of um, colonial virgin territory, you know. And that here, you know, there's nothing wrong here. It's vast, it's virgin, it's beautiful, everything. Nothing really happens. And I feel like it disturbed fundamentally uh, to think that, you know, there, there was this conflict on the ground, you know, then the French uh, soldiers went and all this kind of stuff. It ruptured this, like, you know, image of this kind of pre-modern, you know, sacred place. But, you know, this is a false image, of course, you know, to mm-hmm. begin with. So, And um, to, maybe to, to continue along the lines of wondering whether there is a, a romanticization of the objects or or if it's maybe more complex than that, and it, it probably is to some degree, but um, uh, similarly, um, I'm wondering uh, about, so that two years two years after I've written this article, I'm wondering if the point that you were ex- uh, introducing earlier, the point I was trying to make was, was a little bit too romanticized or not, but the, the idea was to say that, uh, like you say, that the, the, the iconoclast or the iconodules both, and, and, my argument was maybe even the iconoclast even more uh, fathomed the power the power of the icon yeah. and because of that cannot uh, um, uh, is is a uh, fully disturbed almost by the power whereas the people who have such an outrage mm-hmm. clearly don't understand the power of the of the icon they, for for them it's old manuscript but they they don't understand that mm-hmm. uh, uh, what symbolic uh, yeah yeah and and so I was I was taking this this example as well that's a little bit more familiar to me uh, uh, that is uh, uh, the the writing of uh, Antonin Artaud and how compare it to how many I don't know uh, uh, maybe there's a, a million a million French going to the mass every every Sunday or something and having the um, and uh, and uh, eating what they're supposed to believe is uh, the the Christ body but. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't. Th- I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I'm pretty sure many people don't really uh, understand the power of this of this icon. Whereas someone like Anton, Antonin Artaud, who, who in a psychiatric hospital um, uh, was was forced, uh, I forgot if it was once a week or every day, but to 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 eat their, to eat what was told to him being the the Christ body, and he has these those descriptions of of his body revulsed by by eating because he understands this this power and he, he refuses it viscerally and and literally viscerally, and uh, and so so I think there's something very interesting in the relationship that uh, an iconoclast uh, uh, develops with a with an icon and and, mm-hmm. and as an architect I'm even more interested when it, when it happens to be a building, uh, and so I. I guess I have more to say about that, but uh, first I would like to turn to you. No, I mean this is a good example. You know, I haven't read that in a in a long time, but it's it's so true. And you know, also in my article, um, I'm remembering it now. I, there was there's this whole scene in 1966 where you have uh, the iconic, you know, really important figure of Kwame Krumah in Ghana. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's a coup, and then the first thing they do is like they take this big statue and they. Yeah pull it uh, down you know and it's just um you know i think you you said it i think it's it's a it's a pure recognition of what dominance this object mm-hmm. has had over you for an extended uh, period of time you know why would you know 
someone wastes their time doing this this dead object right mm-hmm. and that's 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 the thing and you know i mean i grew up in india where uh there is constant uh violence um against the muslim minority and uh again and again uh the object on the ground uh, keeps receiving like this you know renewed importance there's always something you know somebody goes to a place like uh varanasi and uh you know they will claim oh look you know i can see there was a temple underneath this mosque you know and the whole um land is sort of a palimpsest and each each imprint is used again and again for a sort of political uh, purpose you know mm-hmm. and uh, uh it's it's constant this writing and rewriting and you know, destruction and then the rebuilding and it's just um it's true i don't know i don't know uh, and I, i really do think it's embedded it's embedded in class i think like you know the class of uh, you know the amount of money you have or the class you belong to completely alters the relationship to the object somehow you mm-hmm. know i don't know exactly what i mean by it but you know um i feel and then it's the class that separates the ones that want to preserve and feel outrage versus the ones that are just they just want to destroy it you know mm-hmm. they want it to explode and disappear and so um and so as i as i was saying earlier i think uh, there's uh, some other historical um historical examples of such uh, acts of uh, iconoclasm um that that will will show well i think because uh, so, some people are quite familiar with those examples but uh, how how we we should have like an ethical relationship to those events rather than a moralistic one but i'm thinking of course of some things that have been discussed and written quite a lot about uh, about the, the description of the destruction of the column vandom in the vandom column in uh, during the paris commune so uh, okay. uh, like ceremonially destroyed mm. with like the statue of napoleon is on top so like it's 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 organized as a as mm-hmm. a as a celebration of destruction of what used to be um the friends they were fighting against uh, during those three months of independence of paris but uh since we were talking of of statue i'm thinking of some an example that might not be as famous as this other one which is the the statue of um of the empress uh, josephine so who was the, the, the um, she was the wife of napoleon hmm. um and she comes from martinique and okay. her her dad was a uh, her dad was like uh, the, a slave master and like i mean uh, every, everything she comes from everything uh, um she comes from the, the most intense point of uh, colonialism of of france uh in uh, from from the martinique and uh in um 1856 uh, a statue of of her was uh, set up in fort de france in a, in a public space and mm-hmm. interestingly enough uh when Aimé Césaire was uh, was the mayor of fort de france from uh, 1945 to 2001 so yeah a long time elected everything was predicting that he would and he refused to take it down to to really mark the memory of what slavery had been and mm-hmm. i something i forgot to say is that uh when when napoleon became uh, uh i mean self self declare himself uh, self declare emperor uh, slavery had been abolished and he brought it back and it is says that she she made him 
Uh, mm -hmm. uh, well, anyway, that, that may be, there's <laughs> maybe some historical misogyny as well, so right. you, you don't really know. But uh, so the sla slavery was back uh, was back uh, to illegality in um, uh, in France for, for another 40 years because of that. Um, but so Aimé Césaire decides to to leave this statue where it is. And uh, in 1991, there's a group of uh, um, uh, Martinique uh, independentists, uh, because, I mean, Martinique is still under French sovereignty. People might not uh, know that, I don't know. but uh, um, And they beheaded the statue. So they, they kind of guillotined the statue. <laughs> and, and so the statue is still there, because but then it's... again, it was left as, as it is. And so there is, a, a, there is simultaneously... The power of the colonial icon, yeah. but that's been transcended by the anti-colonial narrative of, of behaving their, their statue. Mm -hmm. So the statue has no has no head and has a, a red mark, uh, a red of, mark, like uh, a bloody yeah, uh, on the statue. So if you go to Fort de France today, you can still see the statue as it is right now. So then they re they painted it yeah. uh, red. Good God. Yeah. Okay. But so I mean, it's just a very paradigmatic example of, mm -hmm. of how. Uh, an object, as, as we were saying, is, is able to carry so much meaning and uh, somehow, I mean, it's not Aimé Césaire who beheaded the, the statue, sure. but by, by deciding to leave it there, Eventually it caught up a symbol to be even stronger than just wow. the, the ceremonial dismantling of the statue organized mm -hmm. by the city hall or something. Wow. So, so I, think, I think there's something quite powerful here in, uh, in our talk mm -hmm. about so was this um, so it was like a deliberate decision made by like a committee of people to do this yeah but I mean it was done in a completely uh, guerrilla uh, kind of kind of way like it, it was done at night with no one uh, no one seeing it or, or anything but it's uh, okay yeah but 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 it got accepted as such because obviously mm -hmm. uh, many people there understood their understood what it meant so yeah it's sort of brilliant i mean <laughs> yeah, it, is. It, really is. it really is no i mean that that i had no idea that illustrates of course martinique is uh, seems to be to me i've never been but a very strange uh, place of all these forces just constantly uh circulating underneath the surface of things right mm. um no that i mean i don't i don't know what to say that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very impressive story <laughs> so I think this whole conversation bring bring us back to uh, uh, some things that you you already mentioned you're you're particularly interested in and uh, and I suppose your your uh, dissertation was about which is uh, um, the, the the governance process that ha occurs in a in a mm -hmm. in a new uh, nation state and I mean uh, I suppose South Sudan is a, is a good example for that but um, the idea that um, you don't create a, con a country, in a nation state, uh, in a vacuum. Right. Things already exist. Mm -hmm. And so in the process of decolonization, for example, it's particularly interesting. If, if we go back to, to India, for example, mm -hmm. the, the, the Viceroy Palace in, in yeah. Delhi is extremely interesting. You have, you have this fight between, uh, between Nehru and, and Gandhi, and Gandhi wants to make it an, an hospital for poor people, mm -hmm. and Nehru wants to keep it as a kind of uh, uh, the, the executive power uh, place and so yeah what is happening during that time <laughs> this, how do you how do you yeah. decolonize 
a building? How do you decolonize? Uh, 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 and I mean decolonize in a very uh, broad way. I also mean in sure. how do you emancipate? I suppose in, in the case yeah. of South Sudan, yeah. for example. I guess I guess you don't, you know. But um, like one of the things when I was uh, doing my research and now I'm trying to turn that into a different project was looking at sort of the very specific uh, small moment of, it's a very short moment of decolonization when this transfer takes place, you know, where there is a power vacuum. And as Fanon will say, it's always a violent, uh, it's always a violent uh, time, right? I mean, even India with all this kind of uh, momentum around the nonviolent movement, it was one of the most vi violent decolonizations in history with one million dead in the partition. Um, and then what happens to space, you know? And, uh, you know, there are so many interesting um, things at the time that I was thinking of, like one of the, uh, you know, Salman Rushdie in Midnight's Children has this um, really very funny, I mean, he's of course trying to be comedic, has this very funny scene where the Sinai, Sinai family, who are the main characters in the book, they, after partition, they move to Bombay and then they rent a bungalow of this uh, old colonial English Englishman. And the colonial guy says, you know, I will rent you uh, this house and it's all yours, uh, except you have to rent it with every all the objects in the same place. And you must have the six o'clock uh, cocktails. You have to keep the ritual. And then uh, so then, of course, Rushdie sort of narrates and, he, you know, he's 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 taking the humor from it, but he's saying how everyone then started to talk in a you know a little bit of a British accent, you know, and they really got into the six o'clock aperitif, you know, um, and you know how they started to take it started to take imbibe uh, the persona of the previous inhabitant, you know, and then in a more tragic sense, uh, and the film Lumumba. Uh, about Patrice Lumumba's short-lived, you know, 61 days in uh, office as president of uh, Congo, uh, also does it where they he becomes a president and then he's forced to move into the colonial uh, house. And, you know, he starts to say he feels very strange being here. He feels very strange. And, uh, you know, and I think during decolonization, it is this extreme discomfort Uh, that eventually takes shape either in a kind of symbolic beheading where you do away with the space or then you uh, you start to occupy it. And I think Fanonian theories, you know, one of my interests in Fanon originally was less to do with all his stuff about revolution and all this, you know, uh, the more passionate stuff. But it was more in the idea that he really managed to predict uh, the way in which the... Um, The, the new uh, post-colonial person, the, the new emancipated person will be failing at creating a, a new state. And one of the issues, of course, is very much of space, you know, uh, because they just overtake these spaces. They start to imbibe those values and onwards and onwards. So I feel like um, it, you know, there's there's a fundamental Um, sort of blueprint that is established that it's impossible, you know, and, and it haunts these nations for ever and ever. And I feel like, uh, I mean, it's one among many, uh, many things that are problematic when the when you know colonialism ends and a new uh, country is to be born. Um, but space is 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 ignored. I think it's less thought about 
uh, within sort of post-colonial studies and so on. So, um, and I'm not necessarily qualified to uh, explore it more, but uh, it's very interesting to me this, um, uh, you know, these leaders, for example, or writers expressing this discomfort, you know, and I mm-hmm. feel like in the end, the exploration around the decolonization of space um, can only be found in fiction because mm-hmm. it, 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 it can only find refuge and uh, understanding in fiction because I think um, at a very technical level, it's hard to mold that space. It's hard to invest uh, in those old spaces and re- renew it. And I think those projects almost always fail also, mm-hmm. you know, like the Gandhi and Nehru, I mean, you know, whatever they're doing. I mean, these projects always, they're just born to fail, I feel, when they want to create a whole new a whole new thing, you know. So, so I take that when you when you talk about fiction, basically you, 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 you talk about the construction of imaginaries, I suppose. Yeah, con- or, you know, a sort of, I, I guess I'm talking about fiction that deals with these particular moments Mm -hmm. and um, I think because the author has this obligation to detail and to unravel and to offer us description or you know take us there that whether they know it or not consciously or unconsciously uh, they are the only ones that are exploring the dynamics of space Mm -hmm. in this moment Um, whereas I think sort of post-colonial theory or politicians uh, don't engage with it in in that way. Mm. Or, you know, they don't. Uh, somehow there isn't room for it as such. I feel. I don't know. Is that well, clear? And there is this. And by the way, when we talk about space, and when we yeah. were talking before, we we kind of switch from object to space. But sure. basically, it's the exact same thing. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, it's really a matter of scale, of scale, I suppose. But it works within the same logic, and. Um, um, it it made hearing you talking made me think of a more personal uh, experience that uh, is in no way should in no way be compared to the processes of decolonization of India or Algeria. Mm-hmm. But uh, when we when I was part of a working group at Occupy Wall Street, mm-hmm. um, we you know it was Occupy Wall Street. We first yeah. met like outside on a curb, sitting on a curb. Doing our, our little uh, hand uh, hand signs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, feeling uh, perfectly fine about it, and it came the time where we started having a, a, the opportunity um, to have a place at the new school to work, and I was totally against that, but uh, I was quite a minority, so uh, we we ended up working there for a little bit. And it was fascinating to see how much uh, the automatism of, of either self self censorship or or sure. on the contrary the the relationship of powers between people who, who would be like many people were teaching. So I mean, put people who teach usually in a classroom, they all in a sudden they become like this very mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe eloquent, but but very also uh, uh, intimidating characters. <laughs> and and I'm very interested in uh, in. The fact that the space is twice is twice political. It, it, I'm absolutely convinced that it is political physically because uh, uh, bodies do not cross walls, basically. Mm-hmm. So this, this this is not about symbolical. It, 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 this this is a physical limit. But here in this conversation, we're talking about the the symbolical and the power of, of um, yeah the symbol, and so. Uh, there's also a second layer of, of political uh, potential potential violence uh, coming out of space, object, and architecture, 
uh, and in that case, it is the recognizable space of the classroom, for example. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and so it's it's uh, I think I think uh, we can we can uh, put this um, problem as much uh, within processes of decolonization than just like everyday everyday life of of, uh, of uh, uh, that we can experience uh, ourselves. Uh, at a very uh, domestic and, and almost banal level. Yeah. But, but maybe that's why, because we think it's banal, so like the symbolic... Yeah, yeah I mean, I think in the... Yeah, when you think of it in the sort of personal or the domestic, it it, it could be rendered banal. But, you know, like I have ar- come to... I've only started to think about this stuff within the context of conflict, right? And the mm-hmm. one thing we know about conflicts is that everything gets exaggerated, like everything from space to sex to... Uh, you know, writing, thinking, it's an exaggerated Mm -hmm. experience, food, you know, of course. And, uh, you know, and then, like, when I was reading all these novels about conflicts, you know, specifically post-colonial conflicts, you know, they started to emerge like a typology, you know, of spaces where conflicts got concentrated or writers focused on them. And, of course, you know, you can't help but think with uh, the stuff going on in Gaza, the stuff, but, um, uh, you know, uh, schools, you know, why schools? Why do you bomb specifically schools? You know, you know the exact coordinates to get rid of a school. Uh, why during the Rwandan genocide all this stuff happened in schools? You know, when you think about uh, kidnappings and snipers during the Lebanese civil war in schools, you know. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's 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 interesting this transformation that takes takes place, you know, to me and. Of course, then the other side of it is, uh, you know, hotels, you know, this kind of what happens to hotels in conflict. They become this oasis for this Mm. kind of international community to hang out, to make decisions, a safe haven, you know. Um, So anyway, so I arrived at all this only to think, you know, I haven't probably one should spend more time on a daily basis thinking about this stuff, too. But I'm interested in how conflict exaggerates all these roles and what it turns us into, you know, mm-hmm. in that moment, in a sense. But so it makes things vis- visible, even more visible. Yeah, 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 exactly. All right, well, Bhakti, thank you so much for talking with me today. I think it was, yeah. it was fascinating. <laughs> thank uh, you. And um, I hope it uh, opens a, a great chapter of collaborations between the uh, Phenomenalist and, sure. and Warscapes. Absolutely. I look forward to it. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.